Ezra chapter 7. This is going to be another one of uh, Bill's pointless sermons. As you can tell by your handout. There is actually a point to it, and it's uh, actually the title of the sermon, The Hand of the Lord. So your takeaway from today, just so we begin with the ending in mind, is that uh, the hand of the Lord is upon us, and the hand of the Lord is upon you. We're getting some echo. Feedback. There's a, there's a thing that Kurt always fixes when he goes up there. I forget what they call that, but it's, it has something to do with the bandwidth. But Anyway, let's begin. We're going to talk about time today. You know, time is a funny thing. Speak for yourself. It never stops moving. And the older you get, the faster it moves. I served in the Navy in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. That was over a half century ago. Whoa. <laughs> and a lot has happened since then, both good and bad. And it's uh, happened both in my life and in this country and in the world. You know, some of the things I thought would never end, ended. And some of the things I thought I'd never get to see came to pass. And that's the way that it was for Ezra. He was a priest of God. He lived 400 years before Messiah would come to set his people free. He lived in the gap between the promise and the reality, just like us. So if you've got your Bibles open, we'll begin with Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, we'll stop there. <laughs> after this, uh, give me a hint, after what? Well, after the temple had been rebuilt, which was in 516 B.C., remember I, I gave you those chronologies uh, for you to keep in your Bibles. It was after Xerxes' armies got stood up by 300 Spartans in a narrow pass. They should make a movie out of that. It was after Xerxes' navy was defeated by the Greeks. It was after Esther became Xerxes' queen. It was after Artaxerxes' longimanus, or longhand, <laughs> Reminded me of King Edward of England called Longshanks. But uh, this is, this is Longjamanus, Longhand, became king of Persia in 464 BC. And what we read about today took place after all that. It's now 458 BC. We don't know what happened in the interim, whether the Jews remained faithful during that 50 years, but Ezra has been sent to find out. Over half a century has passed since chapter 6, and I know exactly how he must have felt except he was younger than me. So maybe he didn't know. Ezra, the son of Sariah. Now, these pronunciations of these names, I looked up every single one of them, and everybody's all over the board. So if you think I'm mispronouncing it, you're probably wrong. <laughs> or right. <clears throat> so, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of, I pronounce it Uzi. They say it's Uzi, but I think it's Uzi. <laughs> son, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra, as opposed to the other guy, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. So this genealogy can also be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, going back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar around 600 B.C. 
and David around 1000 BC and Moses around 1500 BC. Ezra traces his priestly line all the way back to Aaron. Why? Well, I I think he wants to establish the fact that uh, he has a heritage here, that he has some authority to speak among the Jews. He is an earthly mediator between them and God. How do we know? Because in Exodus 29, 44, it says, I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons. No, not just his direct sons, but all of his offspring who would follow. I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. So if you counted all those names that I was spieling off there, um, his is the 17th generation after Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest appointed by God to serve under his brother Moses. Moses had delivered the Jews from bondage in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Moses met with God on the mount who gave him the law, the Ten Commandments. They were written on two stone tablets by the hand of God himself. Moses carried them down from the mount in his hands, says that in Exodus 32.15. This is important for this passage. Okay, why? Because Ezra is described the same way here in chapter 7, verse 14. The law of God, the law of your God, which is in your hand. It's supposed to draw that link for you, that connection for you, so that you can see in what Ezra is about to do, what Moses had done eons before. If you didn't know, Ezra is revered by the Jews as one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. I didn't know that. (laughs) it's one of the benefits of preaching. You get to find out stuff you didn't know before. Many believe he recorded this book in the Chronicles and that he edited the entire Old Testament. Whoa. He's like the Philip Schaff of his day. Uh, You'd have... Never mind. He was a historian and he was a scholar. In a sense, he was the Moses of his day. Sent to return the people of God to the Promised Land. I suspect he saw himself this way. That wasn't ego, it wasn't pride, that was just a fact. He would restore the people of God to God by teaching them obedience to the law of God. That was Ezra. How old was he? I don't know. (laughs) It, it, It doesn't say. But he had to be at least 30 years old, otherwise he couldn't have been a priest. He couldn't have served the way that he was serving. But I suspect he was probably older here. But was he truly a priest? How can you be a priest without a temple? (laughs) He's not making sacrifices in Babylon, so in what way was he a priest? But he's called a scribe here. Oh, I read about those in the New Testament. Uh, Sort of, but I don't think uh, we, we may understand completely what that means. What is a scribe? David's uncle, Jehonathan. It sounds like Jonathan, but with a hiccup. It says that Jehonathan was a wise man and a counselor. Scribes served the kings of Israel as secretaries, secret heres, those entrusted with the secrets of the king. A high-ranking scribe would be privy to the king's business, like our secretary of state or the secretary of the treasury. Wow. That means like he's important. (laughs) He's got a rep. Yeah. Ezra came from a long line of scribes and scholars who were counselors to kings, 
Who else was like that? Like Joseph in Egypt. Like Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar. That's who Ezra was. Oh. As we'll learn, Ezra was a mighty man of God. He was known by Israel, but he was also known personally by the king of Persia, ruler of the known world. It appears obvious that Ezra had been serving in the king's court. How do we know that? It'll become clear as we read through this passage. But now he was headed to the city of David, to Jerusalem. It had a temple among the ruins. (laughs) Fallen walls, just a pile of rubble. And in the middle of that is this temple that had been rebuilt, finished in 516. It was a sad reminder of the days that had gone by. Ezra was accompanied by some of the Jews and the next generation of priests and Levites who would serve in the temple of God, and he was leading them back to Jerusalem. They would restore some of its former glory. Verse 7, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Remember, this is not the first time they've gone back to Jerusalem. Heard about that last time. And the time before, that this is a progression. There was a first return of the exiles. This is later. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, Artaxerxes is a title, not a name. This is actually, as I said, Longimanus, Longhand, who ascended the throne of Persia in 464 BC. It says this is seven years later, and that's why we know that it's around 458 BC. The journey to Jerusalem will be long. It's going to be hard. It's going to be dangerous. And when I list all the things that he's bringing with him, you'll know why it's dangerous because there are bandits out there on the road and he's bringing back a gob of stuff with him. It's going to take four months. 900 miles. Verse 8. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. So there's your four months. How'd you figure that out, Bill? Good, I subtracted. Anyway, so there's your four months. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. For the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra was blessed by God. And God worked through Ezra. So what was Ezra's passion? What made him get out of bed in the morning? What led him to this journey and to accept these serious responsibilities that he's got? What had he set his heart upon as a young man? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at that. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. (laughs) Oh, that. And then to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. He wasn't going to keep what he found out to himself. He wasn't just a scholar learning the law like an attorney, but he was a doer of the law. He set his heart on that too. He wasn't a backroom scholar. Finding his joy in dusty old books, he wanted to teach God's word, teach his statutes and its rules. These are things that King David had delighted in. If you've read Psalm 119, you know that that's true. And now Ezra, a half millennium later, took delight in them as well. Do you? Do we? Take delight in the word of God. When Ezra left Babylon, he had a letter from the king himself, a copy of the scriptures in his hand, and a large treasure to purchase sacrificial offerings to be made to the God of Israel on behalf of the king. Ezra had a goal. Huh. Ezra had a plan to achieve it. Aha. 
Remember, life is a planned event. It doesn't just happen. And the resources he would need. And the resources he would need. He had authority from the king. The word of God on which to stand firm. There's our theme for the year. And the means to deal with the unknown. And the means to deal with the unknown. When you're going into the unknown, you don't know what to expect. You'd better have some resources with you before you go. Because you don't know what you're going to meet up with. You don't know what adversity you might encounter on the way. What about you? Do you have a plan to serve God? Do you have a plan to serve God? Announcement. Spoiler alert. God has a plan for you. (laughs) So it'd be good if God's plans and your plans, you know, sort of coincided there. Ezra was called to be an ambassador of the king, a student of the scriptures, and a servant of God Almighty. I'm going to reread that. Ezra was called to be an ambassador of the king, a student of the scriptures, and a servant of God Almighty. Who else has that? All of you. So are you. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Verse 12, Artaxerxes, this is the the text of the letter. The last one I preached, you know, I I had two letters I had to cover. Now this is another letter. I I haven't looked, but I think there's just three letters in the whole book. I got all three of them. So verse 12, Artaxerxes. King of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe, or the secretary, of the law of the God of heaven. Interesting that the king is going to refer to the God of Israel as the God of heaven. And then the king pronounces a blessing on him. He says, peace, shalom. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, or the priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, who wants to go, who would like that as the desire of their heart, they may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries, to make inquiries to find out what's going on about Judah and Jerusalem. The Septuagint uses a word for make inquiries. It's interesting. It means to visit. He's on vacation. No, no, that's not quite what it means. It means to visit, or more specifically, to care for the ones that you're visiting. To care for the ones that you're visiting. To do them good while you're there. And that good is specified in the letter. He is to do them good, comma, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. How is he going to do them good? He's going to do them good according to the law of God, which he carries in his hand. He's like Moses coming down from the mount. Tablets in his arms. The law, now forgotten. How do we know that? Because later on we'll read that he had to teach the law to the people of Israel. And it's mentioned here in this letter. It was given by God for our good to bring order and peace to our lives. No, man, it's just the rules of, you know, regulations. No, no, it's to bring order and to bring peace to our lives. Why? So that we can live in harmony with one another. And, not, and, and also to live in harmony with God above. Verse 15. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. They know where God lives. <laughs> this God of heaven lives in Jerusalem. 
with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with freewill offerings of the people and the priests, which is vowed willingly. We're going to give this willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. All those who want to gather up some funds, if you're willing to do that, got my permission, willingly give that and give it for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. Their God. Their God. These Babylonians were not the people of God. And they knew it. And they knew it. The letter admits it. These were free will offerings. Peace offerings. Not for atonement. Not for atonement. Why not? Because those are reserved for God's people. Offered up by the priests of God. In the temple of God. Who did Christ die for? For those who belong to him. For those who were given to him by God before the foundations of the earth. To be redeemed in the fullness of time. The Babylonians were not the elect of God, and yet they feared God. How did they know enough about God to fear Him? So as you're reading this, you think about that? How'd they know that? (laughs) Uh, I suspect I got a strong hunch. Ezra taught them. Ezra taught them. He taught the king, and he taught his royal court about him, all about the God of Israel. Well, how do they know about the sacrifices and these free will offerings that they should even know, you know, that that's what he was supposed to buy with this stuff? Ezra taught them. Ezra was a teacher in Israel, like Nicodemus in the New Testament. Oh, you who are a teacher of those in Israel. Ezra was a teacher of those in Israel and not just those in Israel. He was a proclaimer of the news and of the law of God and who God is to the world. He didn't keep it to himself. He told the king of the known world at that time exactly who this God was. Ezra taught them. He taught them the history of the people of God. He couldn't help himself. Why not? Because as we sang this morning, that's who Ezra was. That's who I am. That's who we are. We can't keep it to ourselves. The book of Exodus says the people brought free will offerings of the materials needed to build the tabernacle. Do you remember that from the book of Exodus? They weren't forced to give these things. Moses asked for it and they brought what they had. They were voluntary. They were given with joy. It was a way to participate in the divine nature as the children of God. It was a thanksgiving offering to God in remembrance of who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That little phrase is used over and over. It's a reminder about Egypt. It's in the prequel to the Ten Commandments. Before he gives the Ten Commandments, he reminds them, who is this God that we have come before? I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's who I am. And you are my people. It's repeated over and over in Deuteronomy and then repeated again after they crossed the Jordan. When the promises have been fulfilled, it repeats, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When you cross that river, don't forget. Don't forget. We too have been delivered from bondage. Don't forget who delivered you and the cost. I think Ezra taught all of that to the king and to his court just as he would teach it to the people of God in Jerusalem, that was Ezra's calling and his duty. It was his joy. It was his vocation. It's what God had him do in his day. He was the voice of God in his generation, just as we are in our generation. 
We have the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hand. Will we deliver it to the people of God? That's the question. Not only did the king and his counselors give free will offerings, but they encouraged all the people of Babylon to give them as well. God put it on the hearts of the king and his people to acknowledge and to honor the king of Israel, lest he do to them as he had done to Egypt. The God of Israel, lest he do to them as he had done to Egypt. Wasn't that the threat that Jonah brought to Nineveh? Repent, repent. For the day of the Lord is at hand. Repent. Every knee shall bow. We sang it this morning. Every knee shall bow. They recognized this God of Israel as the God of heaven. And they bow their knee. With this money, verse 17, then you shall with all diligence, quick, 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 buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. And now comes an impressive indication of the king's trust in Ezra as a man of God, and therefore as a man of conviction and of integrity. When we say Christian, those two words should go with it. Character, conviction, integrity, those should be characteristic of Christians. It was characteristic of Ezra. By the way, Ezra, Well, you know, whatever seems good to you with what's left over, whatever seems good to you and your brothers, well, do with the rest of the silver and gold as you you may do, according, according to the will of your God. Caveat. According to the will of your God. Not as you'd like to do, but according to the will of your God. Use the rest of it as you best see fit. I trust you. I trust you. I, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, in this Persian Empire. I trust you, Ezra, a man of God. The king knows Ezra is a man of God whose passion is to teach the things of God to the people of God and even to those who are not. Why? Well, how does he know that? <laughs> because I had to listen to lecture after lecture from Ezra in the king's court. And he must have been a really good storyteller because they listened to all that stuff and they learned it. Ezra's submission and devotion to God made him a visible saint. A holy man of God who is zealous for God. Everyone who knows Ezra can see it. He bleeds scripture. He not only knows it, he's passionate about it. And so the king gives Ezra this child of immigrant parents, carte blanche. Verse 19, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it fails, I'm sorry, which it falls to you to provide, well, you know what? You you can provide that stuff right out of the king's treasury. (laughs) Whoa. Here's my credit card. Go spend. Such is the king's trust in Ezra. The king has not only given Ezra a blank check, he instructs everyone in the kingdom to honor it. Verse 21. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Now we get to see just how much the gob is. Up to 100 talents of silver 
Today, that would be worth roughly uh, $65 million. Whoa. A hundred cores of wheat. I've never bought a core at King Supers, you know, but a hundred cores of wheat, that's about 18 tons. Whoa. And, and wheat doesn't weigh much. Whoa. That, that, there's the gob. There's the gob. A hundred baths of wine. I didn't know you could take a bath in wine. <laughs> it's about a thousand gallons. Whoa, that won't fit in my pantry. A hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. In other words, however much you need it. Take however much salt you need. Salt was itself money in those days. Very important. You, you couldn't store food without salt. You needed it to be purified. And, and no refrigerators, remember. Okay, so they use salt. And salt was used for everything. It's also used in the sacrifices. The king gave to Ezra. God gave to Ezra everything he needed to fulfill the calling to which he had been called. Does God do that for us? Yeah. Ezra was under the hand of the Lord God Jehovah, the one who was and is and is to come. God will fulfill his covenant promises through his humble servant Ezra and through his humble servant Artaxerxes Longimanus. Just as he had done through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar generations earlier and just as he will do through us here this morning, generations later, if we will only humble ourselves under his mighty hand and walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That doesn't mean earning it. That's not what that means there. It means evidencing it. Walk worthy of what you've been called to. Evidence that. You are that. You are worthy. Evidence it. Show it. Verse 23. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Why? And here's how we know what's going on in the king's head. Lest his wrath, God's wrath, be against the realm of the king and his sons. Don't want that. <laughs> I, I want this to go on for some period of time and if your God comes against me I've heard what happened to the other kings that opposed your God I don't want to be in line with them whatever is decreed by the God of heaven let it be done in full we also notify you that is all of you local rulers all of your local tax collectors on the other side of the river who want to take all these treasures for yourselves because you can see that a gob is coming your way. I don't want you to tax all that away. I want some of it to actually arrive in Jerusalem. It shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests or the Levites or the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Hands off. So this was the first non-profit, non-tax-exempt enterprise. This is, this is a 501c3. So. <clears throat> Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, the wisdom which you have from your God, the wisdom given to you by your God and recorded in his word, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all those who know the laws of your God. Those are the ones I want you to put in positions of authority. People who know the laws of your God. Don't put godless people in positions of authority. If only that was true in our day. Now, that's what Moses did. 
It's what Paul would do in the churches of the New Testament. Appoint godly men. Men who know the word of God. Men who evidence it in their lives. And those who don't know them. (laughs) Best verse in the whole chapter. And those who don't know them. You shall teach. (laughs) If they don't know the word of God. Teach them the word of God. Why? That they might be one. That they might be one in God. In other words, fulfill your calling, Ezra. The king is telling Ezra, fulfill your calling. Do what you love. Do what God has gifted you to do. This is what you're created for in your generation. It's what you were born to do. That's what Paul said to his young protege, Timothy. Don't neglect the gift that's in you. Verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, by the way, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or banishment or confiscation of his goods or imprisonment. Ideally, in God's economy, the law of God is the foundation of the laws of man. Ideally. Kings and all those in authority are charged by God with enforcing the law of God. The moral law of God is supposed to be in the civil laws of man. It's supposed to be written on their hearts. It is. Will they acknowledge it? Seldom. But here we have from a king to Ezra, make sure the laws that they implement are sound moral laws as taught by your God. I'm wondering if Paul had this letter in mind when he wrote Romans 13. Using this as an example of what it's supposed to look like. Paul commands this a bit optimistically, i got to say. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He's speaking about that group of men he just described in the letter. Make sure the men that you appoint to these positions of authority are men of God. Ah. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Except for today. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Excuse me. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Oh, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's speaking of a righteous government in which good is upheld and evil is punished. But we were warned in the New Testament, weren't we, that the day is going to come when they will say what is evil is good and what is good is evil. And we are living in those days. So, How does Ezra respond to this role that he's been placed in by the king of Persia and by the sovereign will of God? Verse 27. A praise. Pleased, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, all 16 generations of them, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify. The word means to glorify or to adorn the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me, 
Ezra, his steadfast love. He extended, God extended to me his steadfast love. He did it before the king. He did it before his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. God extended his steadfast love to me in front of all of them. And they recognized it. They saw it. They knew it for what it was. God put it into the heart of the king. We may think this is some sort of miraculous event. Directly from God by his spirit. Altering the desires and intents of the king's heart. And that is entirely possible. We have several instances of that in scripture. Like hardening the heart of Pharaoh. God ordains the ends according to his will. God ordains the ends the outcome, the purposes, according to His own will. But God also ordains the means, the ways by which it comes about. And ordinarily, usually, we are God's means. We are God's means of bringing about His will in the world. It's clear that God ordained Ezra. He gifted him with a love for Scripture with wisdom and understanding to to, to grasp it. He provided training for him. And then he placed him in a position in which Ezra could influence the king of Persia and his entire court. God did that. And Ezra's enthusiasm for God was obviously contagious. Otherwise, this letter wouldn't have been written. I took courage. I was strengthened. I stood firm. That's what the Hebrew word means here. I took courage. Stood firm, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. How could I not stand firm? How could I not be confident? How could I not be bold? For the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered, I assembled, I summoned the people of God as if sounding the shofar, the trumpet of God, in a call to worship, leading men from Israel to go up with me to Jerusalem. Da-bomb! Heading to Jerusalem, who's coming? <laughs> Gather your stuff. We're out of here. We're going to focus on the last paragraph, verses 27 and 28. It's rich with treasure about how we believers here this morning are to respond to the hand of the Lord upon us in our generation. And he begins this with praise. Blessed be the Lord. The word is Yahweh, the great I am, the God of our fathers. He says that. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. This was their God. He is our God. He is the God of all time, of all nations. He is the God of eternity. Our relationship with God spans generations. He is our God, individually and corporately in our own day here. We are His creations. We are His children. We have the right to call ourselves His children because of what Christ did on the cross for each one of us. But like Ezra, but like Ezra, we come from a long line of those who were called by God and who served God in their generation. We today are their beneficiaries, for better or worse. As we learned a few weeks ago, we inherited their world. We inherited their world. What now shall we do with it? The great joy and wonder of all this is that the God of creation, the Lord of the universe, sees us. He sees us here this morning. He sees us. And He sees those who came before us. And He sees those who will come after us. And He sees all of us in the same glance and in the light of His glory and grace. He sees all of us.
He loved them. He loves us. And He loves those who are yet to come. We are all one in Christ. One in God. One in the covenant that God established with Adam and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One in the new covenant in Christ's blood. We are all blood relations in Jesus Christ. He died that we might live. He is our mediator, our Savior, and our King. Blessed be the Lord. And what did our Lord do that we should bless His holy name? He put such a thing as this into the heart of this earthly king. What did God put into the heart of this earthly king? To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. To beautify the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. Okay, but what's so special about this poor imitation of what Solomon built? And which had been torn down. Is it the building itself? Is that what he's going to decorate and to beautify? Is that what Ezra is going to Jerusalem for? To fix it up? To make it look pretty? Hardly. Listen to how God himself described the house that David wanted to build for him and Solomon actually constructed for him. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's Christ's throne, not Solomon's throne. That's Christ's throne. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who is he talking to? He is talking to the son. That's the temple that Ezra went to Jerusalem to glorify. It's the assembly of God's people. It's not the brick and mortar. Those who will worship the Lord just as Paul described it. Don't you know? Don't you know? People of God, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It was given to you by God. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The body there is plural. Your body, yes. Your body, yes. Singular and plural. What Ezra holds in his hands is the word of God. What is it? It is a plan and a pattern of the tabernacle that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Heard about that twice so far today. (laughs) Once in the call to worship and once in, in the communion. It is for the people of God that they may worship God in spirit and in truth. The God who made the world, it says in Acts, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The blueprint that he holds in his hands is the pattern shown to Moses on the mount. Images and shadows of the Christ who would come in the fullness of time. That's what he has in his hands. Ezra comes to the people of God with the word of God to instruct them and to teach them that they may be a holy people, a royal priesthood. That's us. He stands in the shoes of Aaron, but he also stands in the shoes of the Messiah to come, the anointed one. He would be of the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron, 
who has no beginning and no end. This temple of stone will fall. This temple is going to be glorified yet again by Herod the Great. The Bill Gates of his time. No, let's see. Elon Musk of his time. <laughs> Richest man on the planet, envied by the emperor of Rome. And he's going to make a super temple, you know, and that too shall fall. Not one stone was left on another. So that temple of stone will fall, but the temple that is built on the rock will never fall. True? Amen. Amen. It shall not be shaken, even when the whole earth is shaken in God's wrath. And I believe that right now the Lord is beginning to shake this earth. Ezra is the builder called by God to assemble the living stones of his temple into a holy place, a house of prayer in the hearts of his people. And God will dwell there among those who know him and have been called by him. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Those are the ones who will worship God in spirit and in truth. So listen to what God said to Solomon when the original temple was built. I have heard your prayers and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there. How long? Forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And yet that temple was torn down. How could he be saying such a thing? It must be some other temple he's speaking of. Even here, as he's building the temple, the first temple, he's speaking of this other temple to come. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, the ones that Ezra carries in his arms, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father. This is a covenant with Solomon, renewing the covenant that he made with David, that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The temple is where the name of God abides in the hearts of his people. I'll repeat that. The temple is where the name of God abides in the hearts of his people, those who obey his commandments. Jesus said, Destroy this physical temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And it says right in the text, he was speaking about the temple of his body. He is our eternal temple who abides with his people forever. That's who Jesus Christ is. It's a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And to abide in that temple, to abide in his love, to abide in him, we must love one another as he loved us. And so we bear the name of Christ. And that's the way that we bear the name of Christ. That's the way that we carry the name of God to the nations. That was God's commission to Paul. He is his chosen instrument of mine, God says of Paul, to carry, Christ says of Paul, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's Jesus' commission to each one of us here today. That's his commission to each one of us here today as a royal priesthood. We carry the word of God to the people of God that they may obey the Lord. How? By loving him and loving one another, and so abide in him. That was God's commission to Ezra, who would be the teacher of the law to God in Israel. He would restore again 
I've been repeating this. He would restore the word of God to the people that they might live in harmony and prosper. The law of God is not a burden. It's our joy. It's our liberty. The way that Ezra responded to this commission from God is how we should respond to ours with awe. With awe. Me? You. You love me? You. You're calling me your child? You. You love me? You. With a steadfast love? You. Everlasting love? You. He is our Heavenly Father. Our good, good Father, as we sang. Verse 28. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. God extended to Ezra his steadfast love and he did it in the sight of men. He did it before the king and the king's court. He did it to all the king's mighty officers and to all his officials throughout the empire. Whoa. That's better than social media. Ezra was a living, breathing, walking testimony of the love of God through all the generations of his people. Those who loved and served and glorified God alone, even in exile. May that be said of each one of us here today. The worship team will come up. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those outside the church, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as if you were evildoers of some sort, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of his visitation. That's the day in which they will stand trial before a righteous judge. May the hand of the Lord be upon us all. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your precious promises, but we thank you most of all for your loving kindness towards us. We who are undeserving except for Christ. And in Christ we find all of our worth, all of our glory, all of our joy, all of our peace. Oh Lord God, bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.